Arriving into a large city by train, metro, or subway, it's very likely that the concrete or brick sidings you see out the window are covered in graffiti. As you make your way off the train, into the streets, you might see all manner of stylized inscriptions and names written in black permanent marker on buildings and street furniture. Perhaps you then turn a corner to find a mural painted into its material location with a kind of precision that suggests time and even permission may have been given to complete the work. You may value all these markings on urban surfaces, seeing them as part of the vibrant public culture of the city, or even just cool. Or you may distinguish the value of some markings from others. Perhaps those tags, made in permanent marker, don't meet your criteria for art. Institutional authorities, such as the transport police or the local government, will certainly have their own fine distinctions too, between who might mark and what may be marked on urban surfaces. Writing and drawing on walls is an ancient urban practice. But its status today remains ambiguous. For some, it represents criminal activity or simple vandalism. For others, it is to be celebrated, as subversive art forms, often giving voice to those on the urban margins, but also, increasingly, as art associated with an emergent, gritty, hipster-esque urban aesthetic. An aesthetic found not only in the streets, but in galleries, in circulating online images, on merchandise, in commercial graphic design, and even in advertising. The Mediated City is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we rethink media through the city and the city through media. We will approach the media urban nexus both old and new, analog and digital, and most of the time, we'll avoid these kinds of categories altogether. Some of you listeners will be students in my module, Media, Digitalization, and the City, in which we'll discuss and work on these themes in more detail. In this episode, the sixth in our series, we explore the evolution of graffiti and street art as kinds of urban mediation. The key idea I want to get across is this. Graffiti and street art occupy an ambiguous position between criminalization, regulation, legitimization, and commercialization. But as these urban media become ever more normalized, many have questioned whether they also lose the subversiveness that afforded them their distinctiveness or authenticity as urban art forms. Ancient evidence shows that graffiti, or graffito, the act of writing or drawing on walls, has a long history. A wealth of such ancient inscriptions were discovered in Pompeii, a city partially preserved after it was buried in ash in pumice due to Mount Vesuvius erupting in AD 79. When the walls were later excavated in the 16th century, a wide range of graffiti was revealed, including spells and curses, declarations of love, political electioneering, and caricatures. The historical lineages of graffiti and street art can also be traced to the long history of murals, 
and most notably to Mexican muralism, which grew in the 1930s in the wake of the Mexican Revolution. As an art movement, it not only sought to portray themes related to Mexican culture in urban public spaces, it also did so with a strong inclination to revolutionary ideas of the left, such as agrarianism, Marxism, and anarchism. Visit any big Mexican city today, and you will find numerous public buildings painted with impressive murals. Graffito and murals are early examples of expression that rely on urban surfaces as their medium. As Kurt Iveson points out in his 2007 book, Publix and the City, there's a specificity to the context, action, and audiences of inscriptions or art via urban surfaces. They are specific mediums of urban public address, distinct from, for example, those embodied by a newspaper or a gallery exhibition. Urban surfaces have also historically been contentious mediums of public address. The proliferation of politically radical murals in 1930s San Francisco, with the involvement of Diego Rivera and others associated with Mexican muralism, caused discomfort amongst that city's artistic and political establishment. As Anthony Lee notes in his 1999 book, Painting on the Left, a prevailing assumption of the time was that public murals should be merely ornamental paintings, devoted to the aesthetic enhancement of public space. Some radical artists thought otherwise. For them, urban surfaces were a canvas for addressing publics during the Great Depression, who were increasingly sympathetic with political ideas and ideals of the left. Graffiti, as we use it today, owes its genealogy to hip-hop culture. Graffiti is one of hip-hop's original four elements, alongside rapping, DJing, and breakdancing, dating back to early 1970s New York City, as well as other cities such as Philadelphia. Two 1983 films indelibly capture the emergence of this New York City graffiti culture. The first, from which you've just heard some of the soundtrack, is Wild Style, Charlie Ahern's loosely scripted narrative film centered on graffiti writers in which a whole series of hip-hop pioneers play themselves. The second is Style Wars, a documentary film co-produced by Tony Silver and Harry Chalfont. Originally aired on PBS, it went on to several film festival screenings and won the Grand Jury Prize for Documentary at Sundance. The rare insight these films give into early New York City hip-hop culture is mirrored academically in Joe Austin's excellent 2001 book, Taking the Train, which explores early graffiti as an avant-garde yet illegal art practiced upon New York City's subway trains for almost two decades. As Austin points out, although many writers, as they typically name themselves, were concerned first and foremost with their reputation within a community of other graffiti writers— many were also politically motivated. They sought to, quote, speak to the entire city in new terms and from a different perspective. In taking the trains, writers created a new mass media, and in that media, they wrote back to the city, end quote. If you watch Style Wars, the documentary mentioned a moment ago, you'll hear plenty of talk about being all city. 
All City was a designated status for graffiti writers who had managed to throw up pieces on the right subway cars as they sat in one of the city's train yards. In so doing, their increasingly elaborate pieces circulated across the city via trains rumbling through New York City's five boroughs. In some ways, we might say they achieved a kind of mass urban communication akin to early penny papers like the New York Sun, whose slogan, if you recall from episode two, was the sun shines for all. To reach back again to Iveson's conceptualization of urban public address, discussed first in episode one, many noted graffiti writers sought to speak politically to the city as a collective public subject, going well beyond just making a name for themselves amongst other writers in the subculture. More generally, Many early New York City writers saw themselves as gracing aging trains in a bankrupt city with new aesthetic dimensions. They were the antithesis of artists exhibiting their work in elite cultural spaces like galleries. They were ordinary people, addressing others through shared public infrastructures. But as Austin notes, New York City's Metropolitan Transportation Authority did not see it this way. For them, graffiti was, quote, a dangerous and even subversive threat to local authority, end quote. They, along with the city establishment and local news media, turned graffiti into a symbol of everything wrong with urban America. Yo, here, take the cans. I am not a graffiti artist. I'm a graffiti bomber. There's two styles of graffiti that are trying to, you know, coexist with each other. But it ain't gonna work like that. That's why graffiti's ruined. Like, Cap ruined the twos and fives. The twos and fives used to go to the two-yard. It would be like a masterpiece art gallery of burners from all these dudes from the Bronx and Brooklyn with Deaf Wild styles. Now you go to the two-yard, it's it's all destroyed. I wouldn't mind if you would've went over one of my old cars, you know, but I was fresh, it was a brand new burner. It only ran for two days, you know? And he didn't even get a chance to run on the line, just like, PJ and Cap, against everybody. You just crossed me out anyway, so I don't know why, but brand new car, too, he wasted. He went over this? Yup, he did a, a Cap throw up over me and an MPC over this and wrote war next to Fat Albert. God, I don't know, some big white boy. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to know. Yeah, that's what he's doing. People don't know what I look like until now. Until they start going to the movies. They're going to see my face. Big deal. Anybody tries to screw around with me and my friends, I go over everything they got forever. Everybody from Brooklyn to Manhattan. Everybody. Especially with, especially with me, the object is more. Not the biggest and the beautifulest, but more. It's like a little piece on every car is what counts. Not one whole car on every 30 cars that goes by. You're hearing some excerpts from the film Style Wars, in which prominent graffiti writers bemoan Cap a mysterious rogue graffiti writer whose modus operandi was bombing over what these writers considered some of their most accomplished pieces, and then Cap himself explaining his more quantitative rather than qualitative vision of what graffiti writing is about. If you watch these and other scenes from the 1983 documentary, you might find Cap's interventions destructive. But 
In some ways, his philosophy underscores why scholars like Joe Austin consider graffiti and newer forms of so-called street art, which we'll discuss shortly, as the preeminent art forms of the late 20th century. Of course, the artistic content of street art is important. But for scholars like Austin, graffiti and street art's preeminence as art owes more to the critical questions they raise about artistic expression in public space, and ultimately, whether city surfaces ought to be spaces for free expression and public address. For this reason, in a 2010 article in the journal City, Austin argues against trying to fit graffiti into a historical lineage stemming from ancient graffito. This, he says, allows even sympathetic municipal authorities to dismiss it as an example of a historically long-standing, innate drive of youth to rebel against the moral order. For Austin, Neither 1970s New York City graffiti nor 21st century street art are merely further cases of Roman graffiti. This is because, first, contemporary street artists have clear aesthetic intentions, with the semantic content of their work taking on a secondary role. And second, though individuated name or reputation are important, for most street artists, the vital condition is being part of a collective subculture. Austin also questions lineages frequently drawn between graffiti and postmodern art, arguing that New York City graffiti is best characterized as a self-consciously authentic expression of engaged outlaws rather than an ironically distant commentary on commercialism. And yet, in almost the same breath, Austin makes a striking comparison with earlier data art's method of collage. Data art, as well as neo-datist work such as Robert Rauschenberg's, bring together an often distinctly urban world of found objects, images, and words into the juxtaposed artistic form of collage. And perhaps, Austin suggests, graffiti and later street art does the same, but in reverse, inserting itself into found spots on urban surfaces, such as walls, subway cars, trucks, and buses, creating juxtapositions with other visual elements of the urban environment. Ultimately, Austin sees in graffiti and street art the possibility for another art city, one working in contradistinction to the exclusionary urban spaces of white cubes, which is to say, the urban art gallery. While galleries may be spaces which allow the contemplation of transgressive art, they do so by maintaining a distance between that elite space and the wider city, allowing the latter to otherwise remain an orderly moral space. By contrast, says Austin, By operating in full public view, and often appearing to us unexpectedly, graffiti and street art can shake us out of our habitual and unquestioned ways of living in the city. I want to come and have a look at some of these hidden hidden little uh, pieces in this lane. Just about everyone is surprised how much there is. And finding something that you wouldn't normally look out for, you know, looking high, looking low, and it's such a joyful thing. I want to point out this one behind you guys. Check out this guy, Will. How fun is that? I love these hidden pieces. Come and have a look at this. It's very subtle. I love this sort of stuff. It's hidden amongst all these paintings. Even if you looked at every single painting here, it's going to take you half an afternoon. Then you go and look in the corners, you can find all. That's what's so awesome. Melbourne street art movement's been going now since, you know, 2000, when we all kind of started doing stencils. We didn't think much of it. We didn't think it was an art movement. That's certainly for sure. We just were a bunch of punk kids having a great time. And, you know, uh, it, became, it became huge. 
At this point, it's worth making a little more of a distinction between graffiti and the emergence of so-called street art, meaning the work by graffiti-inspired artists like Banksy, Invader, and Swoon, which has arguably become more prominent and celebrated than the graffiti art more explicitly grounded in hip-hop culture. In a 2017 essay in the journal Public Culture, Virig Molnar observes a paradox that in an era of increasingly privatized, surveillance-heavy urban public spaces where graffiti and other minor crimes are subjected to zero-tolerance policing, street art has somehow managed to flourish. A starting point in working through this seeming paradox is to consider some of the substantive differences between the new street art and graffiti. Street art, says Molnar, often exhibits more intricate and layered interactions with the material contingencies of the urban environment. It also intends to involve more media, beyond spray paint and permanent markers, including stencils, stickers, and performative gestures such as flash mobs. And, perhaps most importantly, the new street art is more orientated towards a general audience, rather than a subculture. As a consequence, Street art has become an appreciated and often economically valuable aspect of urban leisure and tourism. It's the sort of thing that features, for example, in the Lonely Planet travel clip about Melbourne you just heard a moment ago. The British street artist Banksy has attained particular notoriety to the extent that he's been able to host major exhibitions in international galleries and even build a temporary purpose-built theme park called Dismaland in Weston Supermare. This is not to mention that some of Banksy's pieces have been physically removed from building surfaces for economic gain. His piece, Slave Labor, created on the wall of a Poundland shop in London's Wood Green neighborhood, was famously removed, only to later show up at an art auction in Miami. Digital technologies, notes Molnar, have also helped to significantly expand how street art is documented, shared, and circulated. If you search for Banksy One Nation Under CCTV on Google Images, you will be inundated with photos of one of Banksy's more audacious works. Created in 2008 on Newman Street in London, by erecting three stories of scaffolding, the piece shows a child using a paint roller to spell out One Nation Under CCTV in white all caps, in view of a real CCTV camera incorporated into the piece. After some confusion over the ownership of the wall, London's Westminster Council eventually painted over the work and later permitted a new building to directly abut the wall, flats which today form part of Facebook's Rathbone Square offices in London. The point is, the life of this piece still endures, though, online via myriad images. And so too do many other street artworks from the wider range of artists on platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, Flickr, Pinterest, and YouTube, as well as specialized sites devoted to street art, not to mention geolocation-enabled street art apps. It is also important to note that those involved in street art don't tend to be marginalized in quite the same way as graffiti artists were in 1970s and 80s New York City. As Molnar points out, they tend to be middle class, and their forays from the street to galleries and exhibitions might be seen as less selling out and more a naturalized and pragmatic progression of their practice. In the same vein, it is easy to decipher increasingly close connections between the street art scene and the creative industries. In a 2010 article in the journal City, Luke Dickens provides a detailed ethnographic account of Pictures on Walls Limited, or POW. 
This was a company created in 2002 by Banksy and his agent, the photographer Steve Lazaridis, which produced and sold limited edition and relatively affordable screen prints of street art. Dickens argues that POW illustrates the growing role of creative industry intermediaries in street art, not only in bringing such work to mass audiences, but developing sophisticated techniques for confirming the authenticity of such works. POW eventually closed its doors in late 2017 with a statement knowingly joking that it had been, quote, taken over by venture anti-capitalists, end quote. If you need any further evidence of street art's massive popularity, Exhibit A might be IKEA's 2015 street art sale. Held on April 1st, it was no April Fool's joke. Rather, it was a fully serious, exclusive, one-off sale with what it billed to be genuine works of street artists. Works removed from the street context to become content for your domestic environment. Exhibit B might be McDonald's much-criticized redesign of their Brixton location in South London, a new space covered in fake graffiti and tags. And yet, even in a context of growing popularity, street art, at least defined more broadly, does seem to retain some subversive capacities. What did the graffiti actually say? Well, the graffiti, amongst other things, said Tikrari Alim Bashar, which is uh, repetition teachers Bashar, uh, we had a graffiti which, in the voice of the people of the camp, said the show does not represent the views of the artists. We had uh, Homeland is Racist, which uh, we do believe. Why, why in particular that? What, uh, what prompted you to, to go with that slogan? We did watch the show... In a scene for the fifth season of American television series Homeland... Filmed in Berlin's outskirts, but meant to portray a refugee camp on the Syria-Lebanon border, producers hired German graffiti artists of Arabic descent to paint the set. The producer's intention was to add authenticity to the scene, but the artists had other plans. They used this opportunity as a moment to express, through the works they created, their discontent with the series and what they saw as its one-dimensional representation of Muslims. For Molnar, the rise of new street art raises some interesting questions of power. Power, to be sure, in terms of who can write on the city, and on this score, in some ways graffiti and street art are competing directly, painting over one another's pieces. But also, power in terms of the differential relationships at play when subversive art, using the medium of urban surfaces and locations, is brought forth into the art world. The appearance of the work of 1970s and 1980s New York City graffiti artists in galleries was widely seen as a form of outside exploitation by the established art world. New street artists, however, are more often already counted to be part of that art world, or are at least well-equipped to navigate it. Their work often remains subversive, which is to say, created in places without permission, and yet, the same work is also economically valuable in an era where urban coolness often precipitates neighborhood tourism and gentrification. As is well illustrated by Banksy's 2010 mockumentary film, Exit Through the Gift Shop, many new street artists can negotiate the potentially contradictory relationships between their art's subversiveness and its increasing legitimacy from a position of relative control and awareness.
A major theme in our consideration of street art and graffiti has been to see them as ambiguous forms of urban public address, drawing on authors such as Kurt Iveson. A final twist in this context is to consider how public authorities such as local government, who also embody public will, however imperfectly, have sought to regulate street art and graffiti. From Austin's account of 1970s and 80s New York City, we heard an account of public authorities waging outright war on graffiti. But more recently, the trend in many countries is local authorities increasingly experimenting with a more permissive regulation of graffiti and street art. One of the most prominent responses by local and urban governments is to permit or sanction street art in particular locations. In her 2014 book, Street Art, Public City, criminologist Alison Young discusses examples such as the city of Melbourne's graffiti management plan, which between 2009 and 2013 created a permit system that effectively legalized certain graffiti projects. The plan explicitly recognized, quote, that street art displayed with permission has artistic merits and contributes to the municipality's vibrant urban culture, end quote. But classified tagging, quote, the identifying mark or signature of a graffitiist, end quote, as an unsightly problem which, unlike permitted street art, detracts from Melbourne's visual culture and perceived safety. As Young notes, this plan was less progressive than earlier proposals, which she herself had played a role in formulating, which would have allowed for much looser zones of tolerance rather than zero tolerance paired with a limited discretionary permit system. Not only was the adopted plan more restrictive, it tended to imply a preferential distinction of street artworks over graffiti culture. Over in my pocket of East London, in Walthamstow, Wood Street Walls is another smaller-scale example of a government-sponsored permissive approach to street art that has gained attention. Named for a local street, this small organization has been responsible for negotiating a whole series of locally meaningful murals presented as a means for beautifying otherwise bland buildings around the London borough of Waltham Forest. Though this project started out as a self-funded collaboration between two artists, it was later awarded £18,000 from the Greater London Mayor's High Street Fund. So, is such positive regulation a step in the right direction? In their 2010 article in the journal City, Halsey and Pedrick seem to think not. They contend that publicly sanctioned graffiti is a form of erasure because it undermines graffiti's essence. Their position recalls Theodore Ardono's argument vis-a-vis Walter Benjamin that, above all, art needs to be true to itself. Since permissive regulation seeks to control both the content and location of graffiti and street art, it subtracts its subversive qualities. Now, whether one agrees with this, of course, might depend on just how they define the politics of graffiti or street art. Is it in the content? Or, as many of the authors we've discussed have suggested, is its politics more accurately in the subversiveness of its acts, of public art defined by its lack of permission? That's it for this episode. In our next, we'll be exploring urban brandscapes, from out-of-home advertising to the broader ways that urban environments are increasingly infused with branded characteristics and atmospheres. So, until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to The Mediated City.